Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. We are live on February the 24th, uh, 2022, really live this time. We had a full start uh, a few minutes ago. Regular viewers know that Keenon is very focused. I wouldn't say Keenon because I think that's a trivialization on two huge issues affecting America. The first is jail time, uh, prison, and the terrible record of incarceration in America. We did a wonderful show with Michael L. Walker, first-time author, Oxford University Press, a sociologist from uh, Minnesota, uh, who wrote about his own experience of doing time in jail and the impact it had on his mental health, the way it almost made him crazy. It's a miracle that he got out and became a full-time academic and has written uh, this wonderful book, Indefinite, which is a must-read. Uh, and then we also did a, a show last week with uh, Thomas Insel, the author of Healing, Our Past from Mental Illness to Mental Health, Insel writes about the epidemic of mental health in America, um, and um, he is, whilst an optimist, nonetheless recognizing the, the level, the epidemic level of, of mental illness in America. At the end of my conversation with Insel, he recommended that um, we read a book by uh, a very popular writer on uh, mental health called Christine Montross, uh, MD. She, uh, her latest book, it's a couple of years old, is Waiting for an Echo. And I'm thrilled that Christine is joining us from her home in Rhode Island. Uh, Christine, um, uh, Waiting for an Echo, The Madness of American Incarceration, uh, got some brilliant reviews when it came out, won a number of prizes. What drew you to writing about this confluence of mental illness and incarceration in America today. Thanks, Andrew. I'm really happy to be here. I appreciate the invitation to, to speak with you about this. And um, I am an inpatient psychiatrist. I work in a freestanding psychiatric hospital. I work on the intensive treatment units of that hospital, which are like the psychiatric version of the ICU. So the patients that I treat are severely mentally ill. They are hearing voices or seeing visions. Uh, they might be very manic or paranoid or actively trying to hurt themselves or other people. Um, and, and what I found over the many years of my practice is that they also, with some frequency, tend to come in contact with police and sometimes do time in our nation's jails and prisons. Um, and so I started really listening to my patients as they would tell me about these encounters with police or with the legal system. And two things really struck me. One of them was that uh, when, when they were coming in contact with police, the legal system, it was often not for any kind of criminal intent, but rather due to their symptomatology. So they were shouting at their voices in a Starbucks, or they were charging through TSA to get on a flight that they had this delusional belief that they needed to get on. And in those moments, police were called and their involvement with the legal system began. Um, that struck me also as somewhat unjust um, that they were- Put it mildly, I think. Right, Christine. that they were falling afoul of the law because of something that was outside of their control. Uh, the, the other thing that happened to me was I really started thinking about what it was like for them in these 
punitive environments once they were within them. That knowing that my patients have enough trouble in the therapeutic environment that is the hospital following rules and um, working within the restrictions of that kind of institution, I really wondered what it was like for them when they were in a punitive institution. So I started working in the jails and prisons to try to find out, and that was really what gave rise to Waiting for an Echo. Yeah, Waiting for an Echo, you're, you're described as MD, which I've put in the lower third too, although you write not as a doctor, you write as, I wouldn't say a real writer, but a different kind of doctor from, um, a different kind of writer from a traditional doctor. It's the same as true of your, your previous books, Falling into the Fire, a, psychiat- a Psychiatrist's Encounter with the Mind in Crisis, and Body of Work, Meditations on Mortality from the Human Anatomy Lab. You seem, Christine, to have found a spot between science and art in terms of your approach to mental illness and incarceration. Is that fair? Yeah, I I was a poet before I was a doctor. I was never one of those kids growing up that knew that I was going to go into medicine. I was a French major in college and then did graduate work in poetry. Um, But when I was writing poetry, I became really fascinated with the ways in which the mind can derail. Um, And so I started writing these kind of romantic poems about madness. And um, then as it turned out, became more and more interested in, in sort of the clinical manifestations of mental illness. And I taught high school English with with a bunch of pretty troubled kids and started to see there was nothing at all romantic about that for them, about their experience. So that really shifted my career trajectory toward a career in mental health. But I think I I love bringing that poetry to um, the study of medicine and, and thinking about medicine. Um, I think poetry and medicine have a lot in common. I think both of them ask you to look at something very closely and then draw larger conclusions from those close observations. So um, I appreciate that description and I certainly try to to bring good writing to the topics that I address. Christine, you were an undergraduate at Bryn Mawr, um, where my daughter actually is currently an undergraduate. What impact, and talking to my daughter and and her friends, it seems as if the issue of mental health, particularly in COVID, has really become an an epidemic in American life. Would you use that word when it comes to mental illness in America, inside and outside the prison? Yeah, I actually did my undergraduate work at the University of Michigan, but I did do a year at Bryn Mawr to catch up on pre-med courses. So oh, I, I apologize. Well, you, 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 you certainly spent some time, and yeah, and, I, I, and, and I, it wasn't in, it wasn't an incarceration. You weren't locked up at Bryn Mawr, even if their architecture is rather Victorian and dark. I went there of my own free will and benefited Good. from it. So no, they didn't um, lock you up there. You know, I don't, I I would not say we have an epidemic of mental illness. I think mental illness is like so many other medical conditions. You know, we're human beings and we're afflicted by the conditions of humanity. Um, So I don't think we have an epidemic of mental illness any more than we have an epidemic of diabetes or cancer. I think that we do have an epidemic of incarceration. We certainly have a substance abuse epidemic. You know, there are, or there are elements of that that could be described that way. But I think 
think, you know, one of the things that I write about um, that really was the driving force in falling into the fire was to acknowledge um, we are not different from people who are, those of us who are mentally well are, are not fundamentally different from people who are severely mentally ill. This could afflict any of us, any of our loved ones. And I think that bridge of humanity is really critical if we are to provide adequate care for people and to provide some empathy for them when they're going through these real crises of the mind. Reading your work and reading about your work brings to mind uh, the great French historian uh, uh, Michel Foucault, uh, especially his, his books on madness and civilization and discipline and punishment, the birth of the prison. Are you, have you been very influenced by Foucault in your work in this convergence of madness and the prison? I definitely have read um, those works by Foucault, and and he always inspires me to think deeply about things. So so and and the fact that he has that overlap in his thought and his thinking has been definitely helpful to me. I think too, one of the great joys I take in writing is going on these kind of historical rabbit holes. So um, and maybe this is the the poet in me, but having a chance to read criticism or theory about um, some of the issues that I'm thinking through is really a wonderful joy for me. Thinking about the history of medicine is a real treat for me too. So I'm going down some wacky paths in the anatomy book about um, anatomical dissection by candlelight and violating orders and edicts from the church and how people used to, you know, rob graves, uh, rob graves and dig up bodies um, or, or in falling into the fire researching dancing, medieval dancing plagues. Um, that's really wonderful and fun for me as a writer. So Foucault has been a piece of that. I allow myself these kind of deep dives into the humanities when I'm working on books. And that's, that's pleasurable for me. Christine, I've always also been influenced by Foucault's reading of um, Jeremy Bentham and the central role of the panopticon in our culture and perhaps our economics. Uh, we've done shows on surveillance capitalism. Do you believe that there may be some architectural elements of capitalism that lend itself to what you write about, mental illness and prisons? Are they intimately bound up with one another or is that coincidental? Uh, I think our incarceration practices are very intentional um, from everything from the architecture, um, to, you know, to, to our practices, our, our punitive practices. One really appalling element that I um, learned about when when researching the, the architecture of prisons was the idea of concept I'd never heard of, of borrowed light. And this idea in architecture comes from correctional architectural theory. And the idea is how do you bring natural light into a room without allowing anyone to have windows? Um, and, and that struck me as this um, merging of our real intention that people suffer with the pragmatism of, um, of these institutions that we build. So the idea being that you don't want a detainee to have access to a window, but you want to find some creative solution to bring natural light into the space. Um, and that was sort of an architectural challenge that I found really deeply chilling. Christine, in, in the excellent New York Times review of Waiting for an Echo, that the headline was where the sick get sicker and the saner driven mad. Do you think American prisons are designed to make people mad, to drive people crazy? 
I don't think that's the intention. I think that's the result. Um, I, I think the intention is really to maximize suffering and control. And what we know, um, you know, and as a neuroscientist, I think I know this well, but I think we know this innately also, that when uh, human beings are subjected to suffering and control, then they do psychologically suffer gravely. And some of those people will become quite ill from those kinds of pressures. Um, so so I, think, I think that's a fact we know well. I don't think the intention is to render people psychologically less well, um, but I absolutely think that that's the result um, of our intentions, which are really to have people be quite miserable when they're incarcerated. The history of incarceration in America, I think, is particularly tragic. We've done some shows on that. Alexis de Tocqueville, his great work, Democracy in America from the 19th century, still the reference on uh, the nature of 19th century American democracy. And what de Tocqueville found was that America was a more open and more democratic society than France in particular. And he came to study America pris American prisons, which were much more open, much more tolerant and permissive than the French version. What's happened over the last 200 years to make America the world capital in incarceration, in revenge, in creating suffering for people behind bars? Several different things have really combined to make those facts true. Um, one of them is absolutely the mass incarceration of people in color in our country, which Michelle Alexander does an a beautiful and elegant job of laying out the history um, of that fact in her book, The New Jim Crow. Um, and, so um, and Walker's book, uh, Indefinite, also, I think, adds to that literature. Yeah. So I think that that uh, you cannot talk about the the um, astounding numbers of people we incarcerate in America without really looking at how our history of racial injustice uh, has contributed to that. Um, I think also, uh, you know, the corporate uh, uh, correctional system in America, these are many of jails and prisons in the U.S. are for-profit institutions. Um, that's really different than a lot of other countries. So when, when corporations for a profit are motivated to keep more people behind bars for longer periods of time, that's automatically a disincentive to have people serve shorter sentences and fewer people do time in, in these facilities. Specifically for people with mental illness, um, there's a historical, uh, a real historical tracing that you can do of how, of how it came to be that we house so many people with mental illness in our jails and prisons. And that number's right around 356,000 people. It's astonishing, yeah, it's, it's heartbreaking. As an outsider, it strikes me that um, that one reason may be some, somewhat cultural, this, this inability to forgive. Is there something in, in that? And, and, and it seems particularly striking in, a, in an extremely religious society to have such a, a culture of unforgiveness. Am I being unfair? I think you're right on the money. Uh, I think when I was working on this book, what really became clear to me is that we say that we want safety and justice. We say that those are the defining morals that drive our, our legal system. And yet really what we do exceedingly well and what we prioritize are vengeance and suffering. We are excellent at enacting vengeance and making people suffer. But what I found in my research is that those aims are antithetical. 
that if you degrade and dehumanize people when they're incarcerated, you, you, you do not end up with a safer, more just society. 95% of the people that we incarcerate are released to our streets and our communities. And we often spend their years in prison, making them decidedly worse, less healthy, less able to engage in our communities. So I, I don't think at all that you're, you're wrong about that. I think mm. we have to choose. Do we want safety and justice? If so, then we need to relinquish our incessant desire to have suffering and vengeance be at the forefront of our correctional practices. It's almost as if um, the the prison governors or the people determining incarceration in America read Foucault and then said, okay, let's, let's enact a society which reflects what Foucault writes about. It's chilling it's 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 and it's so sad i'm talking to christine montross md the author of waiting for an echo one of america's leading authorities on mental illness in prison we're going to take a short break christine then afterwards i want you to talk specifically about waiting for an echo how you came to write it and perhaps give our viewers some some of the stories from this uh, very chilling uh, and moving book so we'll be back in about 60 seconds everybody Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it. But I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Keynote. We're back with Christine Montross, the um, author of Waiting uh, for an Echo, a very moving book about um, incarceration and mental health in America. She's also the author of a number of uh, other prize-winning books, including Falling into the Fire and Body of Work. She sort of exists in, uh, in that gray area between science and art. Uh, Christine Tell me the background to Waiting for an Echo, The Madness of American Incarceration. What's the core of the book and why did you write it? 
So the core of the book really stemmed from when I entered into these facilities, what I saw there and what I saw there was indeed that people not only who are mentally ill become worse when they're in these places, but also that people who are psychologically well when they enter um, become less so. Um, and, I, and the title of the book comes from an experience that I had in a juvenile facility when I was touring a facility with that holds 14 to 20 year old boys. They, I was walking around and I was on a, a tour with a couple of, of other psychiatrists and they were showing us all of the services that they had for the kids who are held there. And I say kids very intentionally. If you think about a 14-year-old being held in a facility, um, the boys that were walking around were certainly kids. Um, they showed me the school and they showed me the, uh, the, air, the, work, the vocational area. We met with therapists. And finally, I said, well, what, what is... The, the, uh, the harshest punishment that a boy here can get. And they said, well, he can be sent to segregation. Segregation is a term for solitary confinement. Um, and I said, for how long? And they said, for up to a year. Um, that was very appalling to me um, to, to think that we could send a child into a, into a setting like solitary confinement for up to a year. Um, this was in New England. <laughs> this was not um, not in some, it was maybe not in a place that you would expect. Um, and later walking through the corridors of the places where these boys live, some of them for several years for their whole high school time sometimes, I saw a boy standing on his toilet um, talking to the ceiling. And I immediately, as a psychiatrist, with that's my zone, I thought that he was uh, having hallucinations and talking to the voices that he was hearing. I have seen that kind of thing before. Um, and then we went to the next cell and I saw another boy standing on his toilet doing the exact same thing. Um, and I said to the correctional officer, because then of course I knew it wasn't a symptom, it was something they were doing intentionally when I saw two people doing it, I said, what are, what are they doing? Why are they standing on their toilets? And he said, it's a real problem. They've found out they can talk to each other through the vents. And so they stand up there and they have whole conversations that way. That to me was really um, a kind of searing moment where I understood that how, how deeply these children were trying to connect and have human connection in a place that really worked against that. Um, so it made me think of the, the quote from Richard Wright, where he, where he said, I would hurl words into this darkness and wait for an echo. And if an echo sounded, no matter how faintly, I would send other words to tell, to march, to fight, to create a sense of the hunger for life that gnaws in us all. So that was really the origin story of the title of the book. Christine, when we, we, I mean, I'm not sure if I'm speaking of everyone, but when many of us think back at slavery, we, we think, how could society have uh, agreed to that? How could anyone have lived with such a, an evil institution? Um, do you think one day we may look back in the same way at this mass incarceration and mass mental illness, which uh, is afflicting America today? I do. I, th I think that we'll look back on this as a period of sh a shameful period in our history. I think what enables us to do that, what enables us to continue these practices, to incarcerate mentally ill people and children, to incarcerate people for decades and decades, to disproportionately uh, incarcerate people based on their race or their socioeconomic status, really comes from this thing that we do where we try to convince ourselves that the people who are behind bars are very different from those of us who live free lives, that they are there because of some 
moral flaw and their character and that we are very different. We are better people who live outside here. And so if you make that distinction, it's easier to say then they deserve whatever they get behind bars because they're worse people than we are. But I really, really part of the drive of this book was to poke holes in that theory. And one of the ways that I did that was at a dinner party with some friends. Um, I was really struggling with how to make people care about people who were behind bars and how to pierce this idea that people were different. So there were eight of us at a dinner party, and I just asked people to list all of the ways in which any of us had ever broken the law. And there was a full page. It went on for a long period of time. Um, these are people with whom I would trust my children, my finances. These are people who, are, who prescribe medications and manage large amounts of money and teach at universities. Um, they, there were felonies on the list. There were plenty of drug charges, um, the drug, uh, drug offenses that could have been charges. There were lots of things that had they been caught or perhaps had they been different kinds of people than they were that they could have been held accountable for in our nation's jails and prisons. So I think this illusion that people who are behind bars are fundamentally different than those of us who live free lives is just that. But I think it allows us as a society to mistreat the people who are held in those punitive facilities. Did you play out the experiment? Did you explain why you were doing it yeah. to these people? And did it change their minds about prison? I think they I think I think that that was already a sympathetic audience. These are dear friends of right. mine who so, accompanied me I mean, on it, this. Isn't journey. isn't the solution? I mean, we need obviously more books and writers like yourself, more crusaders. But shouldn't every American have almost the responsibility for understanding what these jails are like? And then for them to say, Well, do you support this or do you support fundamentally reforming the criminal justice system and the legal yeah. system? You know, one of the things that the great uh, moral leader of our time, Brian Stevenson, talks about, um, the author of Just Mercy and the Equal Justice Initiative, he talks about getting proximate with people. And I think that that idea of, of really um, not making judgments from afar, but getting close to the people in these kinds of situations, hearing the stories as you're, as you talked about um, in in determinant, you know, hearing the stories of people who have who have really lived these lives is critically important. One of the fascinating things that I was able to do for this book was to go to Scandinavia and see how different countries do this differently. Um, and in Norway, there was this really fascinating approach where rather than having designated professionals that work only in the prisons, they had professionals from the community that also worked in the prisons. That means that if you were a librarian in the town, you also mm. spent some time in the prison library. If you were a dentist or a mental health counselor or a teacher, you worked in the town, but you also worked in the prisons. This accomplished a couple different things. It meant that people in the community saw what the conditions were like in the prison. They spent time around people who were incarcerated to learn that they're not so different from those of us who are not incarcerated. And it also meant that when these men and women left prison, they had established relationships in the community so they could reintegrate more easily. They had a dentist. They knew the librarian. They had a counselor they could go to. Um, and I thought that was really brilliant. It is. What about media responsibility, Christine? We're talking on an afternoon when uh, the media is dominated, obsessed, perhaps understandably, with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Mm -hmm. I'm certainly not justifying that. But the violence and the suffering as a consequence of that is in, in some ways equivalent to the suffering of American jails. We don't 
have any media obsession on that? How do we get the media to focus on this profound injustice in America today? You know, what we have learned increasingly is that there are fewer and fewer sources of media that are willing to um, write things that are not just driven by people's interests, right? <laughs> to really shine light in corners where um, it's not that uh, there's a real desire for coverage of these things, that, there, that it feels important to cover these things. And I think as our media landscape shifts and shrinks in some capacities, um, we lose those opportunities. So if you're only going to write about the things that people want to learn about, it's hard to write stories um, that really shine a light in places that people don't want to look. So, you know, I think this question about what's happening in the media landscape is a, is a real question for all of us right now. And to hold our media to high standards of independence and, and fact is, is critically important to support local newspapers, and um, newspapers in general feels really important to me too, even if that's an antiquated view. I think we have to have um, vested interests in things that are, are truly happening in our communities. I mean, do we need a Black Lives Matter moment, a Me Too moment? Black Lives Matter is obviously connected, but tangentially to, to what you write about. Does something need to happen? Do we need some major story that hammers home the um, the world that you write about in, in Waiting for an Echo? You know, these stories exist and they come out. And so it's more a matter of people being receptive to it and, and caring and, and making change about it. You know, I think one of the connected pieces um, is, is this examination of policing. So I do take a lot of solace in the fact that, you know, if you think of policing as the initial moment that really determines what happens to people. Um, you know, people with, with mental illness are 16 times more likely to be killed by police than people who are mentally well. And oftentimes the only response that people know to have to get help to someone who's mentally ill in the community is to call 911. That means police in the moment of that encounter are making the decision in that moment whether the person should be taken to a hospital or to jail. And that decision can radically alter the next many years of their lives. Um, so so I, I'm encouraged by the fact that um, there is a real uptick in interest around policing, that there are demands being made about changes to that, that there's attention given to that. And I think that's a gateway to looking at our entire entire legal system. Yeah, I wonder, uh, a lot of the interest in Black Lives Matter is punishing the police, which obviously uh, policemen who murder innocent people deserve to be punished, but I'm not sure it's the core issue. Uh, Christine, these are such important issues. Uh, you're the author of, of, of this really important book, Waiting for an Echo, The Madness of American Incarceration, as well as Falling into the Fire and Body of Work. I hope everyone has a chance to read those books. I was introduced to your work by... Uh, as I said, um, Thomas Insel, um, who came on the show, who recommended your book to read. Uh, his book is Healing, Our Path from Mental Illness to Mental Health. Do you have any book recommendations for our audience? It doesn't have to touch on mental health, although you obviously know the, the literature inside out. I mean, I think uh, The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander, absolutely. Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson. Those were two I mentioned. Isabel Wilkerson's book, Cast, um, is really an excoriating and beautiful and important book about race in America that I would also recommend. Um, I really love the writer Eula Biss, who writes um, beautiful fiction about 
interesting topics. She has a book on immunity that was written before the pandemic, but is um, more uh, salient and pertinent now than ever. But she's a really brilliant and wonderful writer. And I always turn to, to Annie Dillard when I need quiet beauty. And I think that in a world where so much of our attention is piecemeal, a writer who does really beautiful observations of the world around us is a good reminder of that practice. Excellent recommendations, Christine. Finally, where well, I'm asking all my guests this to summarize, and I think you're a particularly important person to ask, Christine Montross, MD, author of Waiting for an Echo. Christine, uh, who's in charge? Well, in the prisons and jails, it's definitely the correctional officers and the wardens. The power imbalance is really substantial. Um, I think judges are in charge, uh, prosecutors are in charge, but we do uh, a disservice to ourselves if we really put the blame for this system squarely on their shoulders. Um, I have to have the hope and believe that we are in charge as voters when we elect people who are tough on crime. This is what we get when we when we support um, extremely punitive mandatory minimums and prolonged sentences. Um, this is what we get. And so we can do the opposite, too. We have the power to put people in positions of power who um, make reasonable choices around justice and who really, as we talked about, emphasize safety and justice over vengeance and suffering. So um, I believe we have the power uh, in the great sung words of, of Patti Smith. I think the people have the power. 